to our hearts. Um, Father, we pray that you would be glorified as we read your word and hear it proclaimed this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I am going to read uh, out of Leviticus chapter 4, verses 27 to 31. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus 4, I'm going to read verses 27 through 31. And uh, these, um, the, the book of Leviticus, uh, especially the first seven chapters or so, are various laws for sacrifices in Israel, which is kind of foreign to us, but I hope that through the, uh, through the sermon, at least this particular sacrifice would become a little clearer as we talk it through. So uh, Leviticus 4, I'm going to read verses 27 through 31. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. Guilt and, and shame are like stains on our consciences. Um, you know, we tend to think of sin as, as, uh, as an act that we kind of easily committed, but just as easily repented of. And uh, we, we don't reckon often with sin's stain. Sin is not just wrong, it's, it's unclean according to the scriptures. And it, it doesn't just bring guilt objectively, it makes us feel guilty. Sin pollutes our souls, according to Scripture. It leaves kind of this grimy residue, right, of guilty feelings, of a sense of shame, uh, a sense of unworthiness, feelings of uncleanness. Sin causes us to feel dirty. And I, I wonder what you do with that. What do you do with the feelings of guilt and shame? Do you just kind of ignore them and uh, pretend that they aren't real? Uh, do you just... Try harder, right? Try to, try to perform, try to live up, try to be a good little boy or girl. Uh, tr- tell yourself, promise yourself, well, I'm going to do better next time. Do you pretend that, that you're, I'm actually better than I really am? You sort of pretend, you know you've failed, but other people don't have to know that you've failed, right? So you can sort of act the part of a, of a good little boy, even if you know in your heart that you, you're not there. Do you blame Right? Well, it's my parents' fault, or my spouse's fault, or my boss's fault, or society's fault, or culture's fault, or whoever. It's not my fault. It's their fault that I did this thing. Or do you kind of shame other people, right? Put other people down, dehumanize them, degrade them, thinking that if you can make them look bad, uh, maybe you can feel better about yourself. Sometimes we... Uh, we, there's a term self-medicate, right? That means we indulge ourselves, whether it's in food or shopping or exercise or sleep or alcohol or relationships or drugs, all in the hopes that the pleasure will enable you to forget the shame. Right? You're just trying to drown out your sorrows, right? That's the, a phrase that we use. It, we're, we're sort of self-medicating, taking in something to get rid of the pain. We all have different methods with which we attempt to ignore or to remove or to forget that stain 
But the stain remains and it, it resurfaces in our minds and our hearts, which just plunges us deeper into a sense of our unworthiness and our shame. Well, this morning we're going to look at something which is outside of our experience, which is the sin offering. And uh, we're, we're, sometimes it's translated the purification offering. And, and I hope you'll, you'll follow along because this offering teaches us how God deals with the stain of our sin. How God deals with that sense of guilt, that pervasive shame, that feeling dirty. This offering teaches us how God takes that away. And it's interesting that the, um, the offering in the Old Testament, this uh, purification offering, uh, is actually not about purifying people. Uh, it's kind of odd. It's about purifying God's house, uh, purifying the tabernacle, the temple, the place where God met with his people. Uh, in, in the purification offering, the blood, there's, there's blood, you may have noticed. It's not applied to people. It's not applied to the Israelites. Um, we, you know, we often think, well, Jesus' blood, that's applied to us, Right? Uh, we, we sing about that, right? Nothing but the blood. But um, Jesus' blood is applied to us, so we assume that in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were applied to the people as well. The blood was applied to the people. Uh, but that actually only happens pretty rarely. Uh, in the purification offering, the blood is applied to various parts of the tabernacle. You know, the, the tabernacle was a tent where God met with his people. It was God's house, so to speak. Now, of course, God doesn't actually live in a tent, uh, but... Uh, God had promised to meet with his people in that place. And so the tabernacle, later on the temple, which is when God, so to speak, moved into a more permanent home, uh, the tabernacle or the temple are what are cleansed by this offering, by the purification offering. So you might be thinking, okay, uh, what does the purification, the cleansing of an Old Testament tent have to do with me? It's a good question. Uh, according to the New Testament, though, the, the, that Old Testament system, that tabernacle, that temple, that's no longer in force, right? We don't meet in you know, a temple in Jerusalem. But that doesn't mean that when we get to the New Testament, when we get on this side of the cross, it doesn't mean that there is no temple. God actually still meets with his people in a temple. But just the New Testament tells us that we, the church, are the temple, we are uh, God's building, not, not this place, not this structure, but we, the people of God, are God's holy temple. We are where God dwells, where God meets with his people. So it's true that the Old Testament purification offering was about clean, not about cleansing the Israelites, but about cleansing the house of God. Of course, when we turn the page to the New Testament, we find scripture tell us that we are that house. Not the building, but us as God's people. And so Jesus' blood has cleansed us so that God might dwell in the midst of his people. God might dwell in our hearts by faith. So Jesus cleanses us so that God might come and dwell inside of us. So we're going to talk about a cleansing house, so to speak, cleaning house. Uh, not a physical house, but the house of God's people. For Israel, that was about cleansing the tabernacle or the temple, the dwelling place of God, so that God might dwell in the midst of his people. But for us, it's about cleansing the church, the people of God, the new temple, the dwelling place of God, so God, so God might dwell in the midst of his people. We are the house that must be cleansed. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about, the, the cleansing of God's house, us, his people. But to get there, we're going we're gonna to look at three things. Uh, we're going to look at sort of how the house is defiled in the first place. 
uh, and we're going to look at sin's pervasive presence. Then we're going to look at sin's invisible stain. And then we're going to look at sin's double cure. Right? So sin's pervasive presence, its invisible stain, and its double cure from this text in Leviticus. So sin, uh, sin is more pervasive than we, we like to admit. Uh, we tend to think sin is just these specific bad things we do. It's sort of breaking uh, a, some religious commandment, you know, one of the ten, in fact. That's what we think of as sin. And uh, sin, we say, it's doing what we ought not do. And, of course, that, that's true, okay? That is sin. But if that's it, if sin is just breaking one of those ten commandments, it's actually pretty easy not to sin, isn't it? Because how many of you have murdered someone this week? Don't raise your hand, if so. <laughs> how, how many of you have carved an idol this month? Right? Probably no one in the room has done either of those things, we hope. Uh, when we turn to the purification offering, though, we find from the start these words in verse 2. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. God says, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally, in any of the Lord's commandments. If anyone sins unintentionally. Now I'm curious, right? How can you unintentionally carve an idol? Right? You can't unintentionally carve an idol. Uh, how can you unintentionally commit adultery? For that matter, how can you unintentionally sin? Right? I, I, I mean, isn't there a difference between a sin and a mistake? You know, we think of, you know, if it's unintentional, it's a mistake, right? It's only a sin if I meant to do it, we think. Um, if you didn't mean to do it, is it really sinful? Well, in light of Leviticus 4 and 5, and I'm not trying to be complete here, but in light of these chapters, there are at least three different kinds of sin, according to these chapters. Uh, one is unintentional sins, right? That's mentioned in verse 2, unintentional sins. Well, by way of contrast, you have intentional sins, right? You have unintentional, you have unintentional and then uh, lastly, in chapter 5, you see sins of o omission. That means not something you did, but something you should have done and, and didn't, right? Sins of omission, something you omitted. Um, elsewhere, the Bible does talk about these intentional kinds of things, but it doesn't use that phrase. In contrast to intentional, unintentional sins, it uses the phrase high-handed, high-handed sins. So uh, Numbers chapter 15 says, the person who does anything with a high hand reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. It's interesting, the person who sins with a, in a high-handed way, according to the Old Testament, is simply cut off from Israel, which in the end means they're put to death. <laughs> uh, so with unintentional sins, there's a sacrifice here in Leviticus. That's good, right? You could be forgiven. But with high-handed sins in the Old Testament, there's no sacrifice, which means there's no forgiveness. And the idea of high-handed sins in the Old Testament is sin that's bold or defiant or rebellious, without guilt, without shame, without remorse. Um, these are sins in the Old Testament. There is no atonement, no sacrifice. Um, you think about the Ten Commandments. Just work your way through the Ten Commandments. And uh, what, what is the penalty for breaking one of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament? The penalty for, for almost everyone is death. So if you bow down to another god you're put to death. If you carve an idol, you're put to death. If you take God's name in vain, death. Uh, if you break the Sabbath, death. Uh, if you dishonored your parents, children, if you dishonor your parents repeatedly in the Old Testament, guess what happens? You're put to death, actually. Uh, you commit murder, death. Adultery, death. 
You bear false witness in court, right? You lie in, in court. If the person you're lying about would have been put to death, you're put to death. Uh, only two of the Ten Commandments don't have the death penalty, the command about stealing and coveting. All the other, uh, uh, eight of the ten, right, the, the, the penalty is death. Well, what's the point? The point is, Leviticus tells us that the purification offering is about unintentional sins. And at first we might be kind of put off by that, like, well, wait a minute, I'm not an unintentional sinner, <laughs> right? I mean, when, when I sin, I, I, I tend to mean it. Uh, I do it for a reason, which by the way, is one of the ways that the sacrifice of Jesus is better than the sacrifices in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Because Jesus died even for intentional sins, and we'll get to that, uh, which is good for us, right? He didn't just die for unintentional, but he died even for intentional sins. In Israel, though, high-handed sins, uh, stubbornness, rebellion, and sin brought the death penalty. There's no sacrifice needed because uh, you're, you're dead. Um, okay, what about unintentional? Unintentional sins. What, what was an unintentional sin? It's a little bit trickier, actually. Uh, some would say that it's a sin sort of not involving a choice or not involving the will, right? When you break a law, whether you know it or not, you've still broken a law, right? I mean, we, we do that sometimes. Uh, you, you don't have to intentionally break a law to break a law, right? Ignorance is no excuse. So if you're going down the highway and you're meaning, you have, first you have to be meaning to keep the speed limit, so let's assume that you're intending to keep the speed limit, right? Uh, which I know is a big assumption, but let's assume that. And you're going down the highway, and you mean to keep the speed limit, and you don't notice that the sign drops, right, from 70 to 45 or something, and you get pulled over, the officer can still give you a ticket, right? It didn't matter that you didn't mean to be breaking the law, so you unintentionally broke a law. Maybe, maybe the best way, though, to think about this unintentional sin, this category, is to look at some things the Bible says about murder. Is murder an unintentional sin or an intentional sin? Murder. It seems kind of straightforward, right? It's murder. It's an intentional sin. Uh, but there's actually nuance to it. So uh, in, in Numbers and in Exodus, they have this similar distinction about murder. It goes like this in Exodus 21. You'll get there in your scripture readings, I guess. It says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Okay, that's clear. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. You see the difference there? What's the distinction being made? It's a distinction that, that we still make today, even in law courts, right? It's the distinction between murder and manslaughter, right? There's a difference between murder and manslaughter in, in the court of law. Murder involves lying in wait, cunning, planning, right? It, it's totally intentional. You, you, you've mapped this out. Manslaughter, though, may be, it may be voluntary, like a crime of passion, right? You didn't plan it out, but something happens and you killed someone, or it may be involuntary. Manslaughter might be a complete accident, right? You're hunting in the woods and you see something that you think is a deer and you shoot, uh, but it's not a deer. It wasn't on purpose, but you're still held responsible, right? It's an unintentional sin. Taken this way, unintentional sins are those that you didn't plan out, but as you go through life, something happens, you respond to that thing, and in response, you may accidentally break a law. You may accidentally kill someone in a hunting accident, or you may intentionally break a law, like somebody attacks you, you defend yourself, and the other person dies. Both could fall under the unintentional sin category. 
you weren't planning to kill this dude until he came up to you and you know attacked you and you defended and so something that's not planned out unintentional sin something that's not on purpose something that's not premeditated and think about what this means what it means for us is that just because you didn't mean to do it doesn't necessarily mean it's not sinful right uh, if you accidentally break God's law you still break God's law um, that sin still needs forgiveness and so if you break God's law out of negligence, you still break God's law. That sin still needs forgiveness. Uh, we kind of know this, right? I mean, if you, uh, if you literally step on someone's toes, you know, not metaphorically, but literally step on their toes, right, by accident or carelessness, we tend to respond. We say what? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that, right? I apologize for stepping on your toes. Um, we tend to say we're sorry because we feel the need to make amends, even though we didn't mean it. It was an accident, but we still we want to make things right with the person, and so we apologize. Or uh, think about think about your own sinful responses to life. Uh, if, uh, if 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 it's an unintentional sin, what happens? Unintentional sins are what happen when uh, life happens and you respond wrongly. So uh, that's a lot of life, isn't it? You know, somebody steps on your toe and you snap at them. Or uh, you see a beautiful person walking down the street and you lust. Or you see someone else's nice things and you covet. None of those things were planned, but they, they weren't uh, high-handed in that sense, but, but life happened and your heart responded. Oftentimes we excuse ourselves from these kinds of things. We say, well, I didn't really mean what I said. It just came out. Uh, I don't really think you're a jerk. I was just angry when I called you that. Uh, but those kinds of things are actually sinful. And they're sinful because, well, you really did actually mean what you said. That's why you said it, right? You really did think that person was a jerk, or you wouldn't have said, you're a jerk. And uh, there's a writer named C.S. Lewis. He has this, this uh, section in Mere Christianity, a book about this. It's a good section. I'm going to quote a long, longish part of it. C.S. Lewis says, uh, when, when I come to my evening prayers and I try to reckon up the sins of the day, nine times out of ten, the most obvious one is some sin against charity, some sin against love. He says, I have sulked or snapped or sneered or stubbed or stormed. And the excuse that immediately springs to my mind is that the, the provocation was so sudden and unexpected, I was caught off guard. I had not time to collect myself. Now that may be an, an extenuating circumstance as regard those particular acts, they would obviously be worse if they had been deliberate or premeditated. On the other hand, surely what a man does when he has taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in the cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I really am. The rats are always there in the cellar. But if you go in shouting and noisily, they will have taken cover before you switch on the light. Apparently, C.S. Lewis says, the rats of resentment and vindictiveness are always there in the cellar of my soul. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that premeditated sin is bad. Right? It's even worse than those that just happen. Okay? But the unpremeditated sin, those that just happen when we're caught off guard, those are the things that show our hearts for what they really are. 
one of my seminary professors on the first day of class, he lifted up a cup of water and he bumped it and knocked water on the floor. And then he, uh, he asked the question, why did water spill on the floor? You know, he holds a cup of water, bumps it, water spills all over the floor. And then he says, why did water just spill on the floor? And we want to say, well, because you bumped the cup, right? That's why water spilled all over the floor. But his answer was, because there was water in the cup in the first place. Because you can bump an empty cup until you're blue in the face, but no water will ever spill on the floor. See, when life bumps us and sin spills out, it's because there was sin there in the first place. Okay? Unintentional sins. I didn't mean to do it, but sin was in my heart. Life bumped me and sin spills out. So you have high-handed sins that are premeditated. In the Old Testament, there's no sacrifice for them. You're, you're put to death. And then you have these unintentional sins. Sins that just happen when, when life happens, you get bumped, sin spills out. And that's what this sacrifice is about. You have, a, you have a third category of sin in this chapter, though. You have sins of omission, right? Uh, chapter 5 continues these laws about the purification offerings, but it's talking about a, a different category of sins. And some of them, if you read chapter 5, the first few verses, they don't even look like sins. It seems kind of a hodgepodge of things. But the common denominator in those things is that they're all things that are left undone. Things that someone was supposed to do, but they didn't do. So failing to show up in court, or failing to cleanse oneself from uncleanness, or failing to keep an oath. Whereas chapter 4 deals with unintentionally doing something that ought not to be done, chapter 5 deals with not doing things that ought to be done, which kind of fleshes out this picture of sin from these two chapters. What kinds of things are sinful? Well, high-handed rebellion against God, that's clearly sinful intentionally breaking any one of the Ten Commandments, okay, that's clear, that's sinful. Okay, but unintentionally breaking God's law, that's also sinful. Whether something done in the heat of the moment or whether it was genuinely an accident uh, that breaks the law. There are also things that we should do, though, that we often leave undone. And so we have, we have negligence, we have ignorance, carelessness, sins of commission and omission, things you do and things you don't do even procrastination, you begin to feel like there are just a million and one ways to fail to live up to God's law. And then you turn to the New Testament, and actually it gets worse. Because Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he focuses us inward. You know, we can talk about degrees of murder and manslaughter, first degree, second degree, but Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. Oh, man. I, have to, I don't even have to kill him. I just have to be angry with him? Really? And so it's not just what might come out if I'm bumped in life, but it's also what doesn't come out, what I keep hidden. That's sinful too. The anger, the selfishness, the pride, the resentment, the lust, the greed, and all the rest. Now remember what this point is about. It's, it's a depressing one, right? It's about sin's pervasive presence. It's everywhere, everywhere in my life. Intentional, unintentional, omission, commission, things that don't even get out of my heart. I know that's, that's, that's kind of a depressing point. That's hard. And, and um, maybe it once you, makes you want to get up and leave the room. Please don't do that. It will get better. But it's actually going to get worse before it gets better. So point one is about sin's pervasive presence. Point two is about sin's invisible stain. Right? Um, 
Sin is more pervasive than we would like to admit, but it's also more damaging than we understand. This passage uh, in Leviticus 4 and 5, it talks about two effects of sin. And the first one, we, we get a little bit better. Uh, you know, sin brings guilt. And we, we, we get that. Um, eight times our passage talks about bringing or realizing guilt. Eight times. And the English word guilt, it actually can mean two different things. Uh, it can mean, sort of subjectively, it can mean guilty feelings, Right? Feeling remorse for wrongdoing. I feel bad for what I've done. We talk about that as guilt. I feel bad. But there's also an, an objective use of the word guilt. A guilty verdict. Like when the judge says, guilty. You may not feel guilty, but you are guilty right before the law when the judge says that. So when you've broken a law, you are guilty whether you feel guilty or not. And it's actually this objective sense of guilt that Leviticus 4 is talking about. It's saying uh, if, you're, if your sin uh, was committed in the heat of passion, if it was a matter of negligence, or even if it was truly accidental, at some point you may realize your guilt. Or the sin which you committed will become known somehow. Maybe somebody confronts you on it. Maybe, maybe you just suddenly, it comes to your mind, wait a minute, that, that was wrong. Um, and just as when we break a law, we become guilty and liable uh, to fines or jail time or worse, so one of the effects of sin is guilt. Right? When, when, we, when we break God's law, we become guilty objectively before God. But what's less familiar to us is the second effect of sin. So sin makes us guilty, but sin also defiles uh, it's, it's kind of a, that's an Old Testament word, right? Defiles. Um, defiling is, is a mental concept that's kind of foreign to us. Uh, it's, but as an experience, it's actually very familiar. Uh, to defile is to pollute. It's to make unclean. It's to make dirty. And all uncleanness in the Old Testament defiles. Not all uncleanness is sin in the Old Testament, but all uncleanness defiles. And all sin is one kind of uncleanness, right? Sin is uncleanness. So sin defiles. It makes us unclean. And uh, you, again, we know this better than we wish we did. Because when you sin, you feel dirty. If you've ever been sinned against, especially in a serious way, that other person's sin made you feel dirty. Sin makes us feel unclean. Because on some level, sin makes us unclean. And if you've been sinned against in a serious way, this should actually validate the way you feel. Right? It makes sense. If you've been sinned against, it makes sense that you feel dirty. Now, if you feel unclean because of your own sin or, or because of somebody else's sin, don't despair. Right? Because in a moment, we're going we're to talk about how unclean things can be made clean by the blood of Jesus. Right? That's where we're going. The unclean things can be made clean. Sin defiles us. It not only brings guilt, but it also makes us feel guilty, right? It brings shame. It makes us unclean, even in the sight of God. And, you know, the book of Psalms, uh, multiple times, uh, the book of Psalms asks, who can dwell with God, right? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in God's holy place? Who can be in God's presence? Who can be close to God? And the answer that the Psalms gives is he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those psalms, it, it's a little bit of a problem for me. <laughs> because I know I'm not blameless. And I know I don't always do the right thing. 
And I know that my hands are not always clean. My heart is certainly not always pure. I'm guilty and defiled before God. I'm full of shame, full of uncleanness. How could God dwell with me? How could God dwell in Israel? Right? When Israel sinned, defiled them and defiled their tabernacle, how can God now dwell in the church? When our sin defiles us, the New Testament temple of the Spirit, right? And our sin defiles us. How could God keep dwelling with us? The threat hung over Israel year after year that, that God would abandon His tabernacle. Will God abandon us? Will God abandon us because of our sin? Will He turn His back on us? Have you, are you ever afraid of that? that? That God might leave you? Do you ever feel so unclean, so shameful, so guilty that, that you think God just might get up and move on? Sin brings guilt, sin defiles, which brings us then to sin's double cure. You know, how, how do we often respond to the uncleanness of sin? How do we respond to its guilt? How do we respond to its shame? Well, we may try to wash it, off, wash it away, sometimes physically. We may, we may punish ourselves or mistreat ourselves, uh, treat ourselves poorly because we think, I don't deserve any better. We may demean others to make ourselves feel better. Uh, we may try to control life to build kind of this orderly little universe to balance out the disorder of the uncleanness and the guilt and the shame in our hearts. We have hundreds of ways of, of managing the guilt and the uncleanness, but none of them actually remove guilt and uncleanness, right? The guilt doesn't go away. The shame doesn't go away. But God has provided a way, a way pictured in the tabernacle and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. God deals with our guilt through atonement and our uncleanness through purification. Uh, so sin makes us guilty, right? Objectively so. All sin is a failure to love, and a misdirection of love. Uh, to sin is to break God's law, which is to love Him with all our hearts and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we've sinned, then we haven't done that in some way. When we fail to love, when we sin, we make ourselves liable to God's judgment. Now, you, you, you may remember God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, on the day that you sin, you will die. Um, the New Testament says plainly that the wages of sin is death. But the bloody Old Testament offerings show us God's grace. That though our sin deserves death, God is willing to accept a substitute in our place. And we see that here in Leviticus 4. Regardless of whose sin, they, they bring a blameless animal to the temple. They lay their hand on the head of that animal, which is them identifying with the animal, demonstrating that this animal stands in their place. And then they kill the animal. The blameless dies in the place of the blameworthy. The animal acts as a ransom for the life of the sinful person. And this is the, the meaning of the word atonement, ransom by substitute. Leviticus 17 talks about it. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood of the animal. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, the blood representing the life of the animal, the blood of the animal representing its life, makes atonement, the life of the animal, in place of the life of the worshiper. And in that way, the guilt is removed. So chapter 4, verse 20 of Leviticus says, after the, after the ritual of the, the purification offering, it says, and the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. The animal has died in the place of the worshiper. The, the animal has received the punishment in our place. 
The bloody sacrifices provide a substitute who takes the punishment of death, the blameless for the blameworthy, and so brings forgiveness. But that's actually just half of what the purification offering is all about. And we, we tend to get that half. We know that Jesus died in our place, right, to bear our punishment so that we could be forgiven. But there's more. Something particular is done with the blood of the purification offering in this passage. The blood is sprinkled on different parts of the tabernacle and its furniture. It's sort of spread all over the house, which would be kind of gross for us, but that's what they did, right? They took this blood of this animal, they sprinkled it on the altar, they sprinkled it on the, the veil, they sprinkled it ultimately on the, the Ark of the Covenant. They're sprinkling this blood all over the place, and the question is, why? Right? Why sprinkle this blood everywhere? And if you read through Leviticus 4, it actually doesn't tell us, which is kind of frustrating. Uh, but if you keep reading in Leviticus, eventually Leviticus chapter 16 does tell us. And Leviticus 16 says of the sprinkling of blood that this makes atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. So the sprinkling of the blood makes atonement. Again, the blood is sprinkled on the altar in Leviticus 16, and we're told, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it for the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. See, the blood was, it, it cleansed the holy place from the uncleanness caused by the people's sin. The, the, the blood was kind of like a, a cleansing agent. It was kind of like Clorox or, or Lysol or Mr. Clean, right? The, the blood was seen because it was the blood of the sacrifice. It removed the dirt and the uncleanness and the sin of the people. It removed that stain. And, and think about this. Bring, bring this home for a minute, right? The, the purification offering was about cleansing God's dwelling place so that God might continue to dwell in the midst of his people. Well, we are God's New Testament dwelling place. God's temple, indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. And when the New Testament uses the language of purification, which it does, what is being purified? Well, we're told Jesus purifies us. Our consciences, our hearts, our souls, ourselves, our hands. You see, the focus of God's purifying work in the New Testament is not a building, but it's God's people. How does that happen? Well, just as it did in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, when an Israelite recognized their guilt, they came before the Lord, they confessed their sin, and the great high priest right, made atonement for them through the death of a substitute. He was forgiven, and the tabernacle was cleansed of its impurity. When we recognize our guilt, we come to our Father, we confess our sin, and Jesus, our great high priest, intercedes for us. That is, he goes to God for us, having already made atonement by his blood on the cross, and now his blood cleanses us of all sin. His blood cleanses us. In fact, you may know that, that verse in, in uh, 1 John 1, uh, 9, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He cleanses us. He takes away that stain of sin. But Jesus... Sacrifice, thankfully, it's not just for unintentional sins, right? Or we'd be in big trouble, but it's for all sin. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists some of those high-handed sins. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he adds, Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you, but you were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. See, when we come to Jesus, our every sin and every sinful stain is washed away. Do you feel dirty? Right? Do you have a sense of the guilt and shame of your sin? Do you feel unclean or unlovable or untouchable like God could never ever accept you? God could never receive you? Does your sin or another person's sin cling to you like, like, like a grimy stain? Is that invisible stain overwhelming? Is it crushing? Is it suffocating? Come to the Father. Confess your sin. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, you may, you may have done that. And you may say, well, I still feel it. I still feel it. I still, I still feel that shame. I still feel that guilt. I've come to Jesus. I've confessed my sin. And here's what I would say. Keep coming. Right? Because He has cleansed you, whether you realize it or not. But keep coming. Keep, keep laying your heart before Him. Keep remembering the, the cleansing power of His blood until it sinks deeply into your heart, until you know that you have been cleansed by His blood. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You so much for the blood of Jesus which cleanses us from all sin. Our Father, we, we do feel it. We, we feel the, the weight of our guilt. We feel the stain of our shame. And, and we pray, Father, that You would cleanse us Cleanse our consciences, cleanse our hearts, cleanse our minds, cleanse our hands, Father. Make us clean in your sight and enable us to know that and rejoice in that and be excited about that, that we have been cleansed. Before you, our, our sin has been washed away. We thank you and praise you for that, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.